Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we zero in on now and unpack what that means in relation to history. Um, today I'm sharing a dialogue I had last year with Laura von Ostrovsky. Um, I think it's timelessly relevant though because we talk about the best known yogic text, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, and the way it's interpreted by people today. Um, Laura teaches yoga in Munich but she's also a scholar so we really focus on her work researching yoga philosophy with modern practitioners. Now, if you'd like to dive deep into Patanjali's text and uh, discuss these ideas with me, uh, I'll be hosting a course that runs live in June. So you can find out more about that at truthofyoga.com. Uh, and if you're listening to this later, um, it will also be available to study on demand. Now, for more about the podcast and to support it as a subscriber, visit ancientfutures.substack.com. Um, and just to warn you, um, we had a bit of a glitch in the middle of this recording due to some Wi-Fi trouble, plus uh, there was construction going on outside my window. But uh, hopefully our discussion will hold your attention nonetheless. So let's dive into this rich conversation with Laura von Ostrovsky. Hello, welcome. Uh, I'm Daniel Simpson and I'm joined today by uh, Laura von Ostrovsky, who's going to be talking to me generally about yoga philosophy, but um, also specifically about her new book, which is uh, her PhD, uh, you know, several years of deep research looking at yoga philosophy you know, more generally, but very specifically looking at the Yoga Sutra, the text that everybody wants to talk about. <laughs> and uh, you've titled the, the, the book uh, Ein Text in Bewegung, so a text in motion, um, and the motion really seems to be an interpretation. <laughs> it's a text that says some things quite clearly that aren't necessarily the focus of people today looking at it. Instead, they have their other ideas about what they would like it to say. So I wondered if you could first just uh, give us a little general introduction, you know, what is the traditional function of the Yoga Sutra? What does it actually tell us if we read it on its own terms? And how is that different to the way that people want to use it today? Thanks, Daniel, and thanks for um, the invitation to this chat. I really look forward to that. And um, yeah, I mean, I called it uh, text in Bewe Text in Bewegung, a text in motion, because I did my master thesis on the reception of the Yoga Sutra in uh, Germany in the early 20th century. 
and um, just focused on Sanskrit terms and how they changed uh, from first um, tra uh, um, translations, uh, Deussen and so on, like um, late 19th century to then up to the um, 1930s in Germany, so to um, National Socialism. And um, I realized that the text, even in that time, when it was not connected to physical practice as it is today, it changed its meanings um, completely, <laughs> depending on if there was a psychologist reading the text, a national socialist or a philosopher or an academic like Paul Deussen. So, um, and that means this text has in its reception history, but um, also before in India, has always been in motion. So um, it is not a static text that has had one meaning in the last 2000 years. And um, now today, of course, um, and this is kind of a, is, it has a double meaning, the um, a book title. Now, today, of course, it is related to physical practice. So motion becomes then, um, um, gets another dimension. So, um, yeah, of course, when we look at the um, Patanjali Yoga Shastra, that means the Yoga Sutra in connection with um, it's Bhashya, um, then this is a text Just that Just to is, clarify for anyone it, listening who doesn't know Sanskrit, Bhashya means commentary, yeah? So there's a, a commentary is, that goes with the sutras, like almost extended footnotes explaining them. That's it. And we have this theory of um, the Indologist Philip Maas, who claims, and um, this is very accepted by now in uh, yoga studies and academic yoga research, that um, the Yoga Sutra has always been somehow connected to the Bhashya, to um, this oldest commentary from the beginning on. So um, one could even say, this is a theory, of course, or a thesis that um, the Bhashya was written by the same author than the Sutra, but we just don't know, of course, but um, it has, it had and has um, still an extreme um, authority in its history. So if we look at um, the sutra, this very short like notes, let's say, um, without nearly a verb in it, <laughs> and a very extended big bhashya, then of course, this is a text that um, in the end teaches disembodiment. So it uh, wants to remove, um, let's say, the practitioner from daily life, from embodied life, from social life, from, um, yeah, it's actually a renunciative text for um, an ascetic elite and a male ascetic, ascetic elite, elite. Yeah. yeah, for a male ascetic elite, as Philip Maas also worked out in one of his articles. And um, so, yeah, there, there is a very different, um, let's say, goal. <laughs> Um, that this text aims at, then what um, the text is used for today. So just, I mean, one could go into many details here, but um, maybe we just can dive into this when it fits. But when we look at today's reception, um, it is broad. And I have to say that in my book, I focused on a certain um, like part of the yoga scene, Ashtanga yoga. 
as it was um, shaped by South Indian Patabi Joyce, but um, somehow prepared and um, built up by uh, Tirumalai Krishnamacharya in the 1930s um, in um, South India too. And um, so I really looked only at this um, part of yoga history and there is a much broader part of Indian yoga history in the 20th century, so we have to be clear about that. But um, when I looked at um, Ashtanga Yoga, a little bit at the history of Ashtanga Yoga, um, um, according to Patabi Joyce, but then especially here in Germany, um, this differs, let's say, extensively from an old, let's say, really old Indian and uh, in connection with the commentary view on um, uh, the Yoga Sutra. So, yeah, should I go into details how it well, differs? Yeah, I think one thing that stands out when you say motion, and just in case anybody isn't too familiar with Ashtanga Yoga, it's, it's flowing sequences of postures connected together. So moving from one thing to another repeatedly for 90 minutes. So it's the basis of what people today perhaps know as Vinyasa Yoga. Um, so it's, it's, it's the exact opposite of what Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra is saying, which is basically sit down, shut up, don't do anything ever again and learn that you're not the body and in fact you're not this world. <laughs> so um, it's, it, it seems that you know, physical practice in the Yoga Sutra, as you say, is to disconnect from the body and perhaps even become disembodied. So if we could maybe even start there, where, where can we see clear evidence of those two things, yeah, disconnection from the body and even about disembodiment for anybody who's doubting that this is what the Yoga Sutra actually says. In the text itself, you mean? Hmm. Well, first of all, it, it does not um, evolve any notion of the body that's the first thing so it does not talk about it it just talks about it in negation for example that the body um is um i just have german words in my head but it's um disgusting it should be there should be a reluctance from the body so this is one thing because it just distracts it distracts um from a let's say um singular um meditative mental state yeah this is so, sutra 240 in case anybody's wondering i think isn't it where they talk about yeah the it must be sutra 240 yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a sutra of 39 or 40 yeah a sutra that is was actually in the teacher training that i did my research on and i write on that too it was um left out so it was <laughs> not talked about <laughs> um yeah so i think this is very common in in modern yoga to leave these um traces in the sutra that somehow really Rare, it rarely happens um, explicitly, but when it happens that the body is somehow um, disregarded, um, that there is an evidence for a disregard of um, the body, they are left out. So these are not the prominent sutras <laughs> at all. And they've never been actually, they've also not been prominent in the early 20th century, even if they, this was quite a disembodied view on the Yoga Sutra at that time. So yeah, this is the first thing. And then we, we only see in the whole text that it um, somehow deals with mental states. So it deals yeah. with different mental, um, extremely focused, concentrated states. And um, now the thing is, 
if we what I try to do in my in my work, if we um, understand the whole, let's say, human cosmos, not in a dualistic view. So there's body and mind and they don't interact, but they somehow interact in not only somehow, but they interact every minute, every second of our lives. Um, if we just say a purely, purely mental states or purely, um, yeah, concentrative states or something like that, as long as you live, this is an, still an embodied state. I think this is what we have to somehow still acknowledge and still have to look at. And I, I miss this sometimes in the discussion. So um, there is this view on total disembodiment in the Yoga Sutra or the uh, Patanjali Yoga Shastra and today a whole focus on embodiment. And that means moving. But even if you don't move and you meditate um, on your cushion and you sit there very still and you try to um, get let's say more and more still in your body it's still your body <laughs> it's still there <laughs> well, actually there's a quite a nice contrast in in one of the other traditional texts that yoga teacher trainings often focus on that again doesn't get that much attention there at the start of chapter three of the bhagavad-gita um, they basically make fun of these ascetic yogis saying it's impossible to not do anything your, your body's as long as you're alive your body's doing things whether you want it to or not so the question is you know what do you do with this activity and how's your relationship with activity but people then i think in the modern world seem to want to read the yoga sutra as if it's talking about the same thing rather than is the exact opposite the very thing that the gita was rejecting yeah completely yeah, so um, I think it's something we should look at if we if we look at these or if we claim that the, that the Patanjali Yoga Shastra is searching for totally disembodied states. I mean, if you look at just the, the dualism, it states of Purusha and Prakriti, um, just when the connection with Prakriti only ends when death is there. So it only ends when actually the body does not move anymore because it's <laughs> <laughs> Which is what Sankhya philosophy says. If you go to the Sankhya Karika, I mean, I think it's 68, uh, the Karika that says that you know, Kaivalya is you know, total disconnection from the body, as in, you know, exactly that, no longer being embodied because you're no longer alive. Um, and of course, nobody's going to do that while they're alive. So people in the modern world sometimes say, well, when academics are saying all this, they're just picking the text to pieces, they're failing to see all the wonderful ideas in it, and we shouldn't even listen to them. And uh, I think, you know, there's sometimes a danger that people can mistake this uh, attempt to show what the text says for trying to say nobody should ever look at it. Nobody's allowed to be inspired by it. You should put it away unless you want to sit in a cave for the rest of your life. Um, and I just want to make clear that's not what we're trying to do here. We're, we're, we're trying to actually just see actually what the Yoga Sutra teaches, the ability to distinguish one thing from another thing. Um, that's yeah. the practice of discernment, which is what leads to this separation. Um, yes. But at the very simple level, we're just trying to separate what it says itself from what other people have made it mean. And there's one other point that I'd like to just quickly come back to. You mentioned, obviously, your focus on Ashtanga Yoga. And that word, I think, Ashtanga is a very interesting one because that's the part of the text that everybody's so excited by today. You know, if you ask anybody about yoga philosophy, they'll start talking about eight limbs and uh, that's the literal meaning of Ashtanga. But I wonder if you could just perhaps talk a little bit about the two different uses of that term to mean you know, eight limbs in the modern yoga world and, and also that particular practice just to help people understand the difference. Yeah, 
Ja, so um, for Pashtavi Joy's Ashtanga Yoga, it is a bit difficult to find out why this practice was called Ashtanga Yoga and when, when this is such a direct um, 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 reflection on the second part of the second chapter of the Yoga Sutra or this part of the second um, chapter. And um, I mean, we have a um, some informations from Mark Singleton and I did not find out much more historically on how and why Patabi Joyce started to call it Ashtanga Yoga. Um, but it seems that's what uh, Mark Singleton found out in um, in uh, chats with um, students of Patabi Joyce um, that it was called Asana before in the 1970s. So his physical intense yoga um, system of um, dynamic movements was called asana in the um, 19 or before in the 1970s the first Americans came to um, Mysore to learn from Patabi Joyce and they wanted to know what is this how is this called <laughs> um, what we what we do here on the mat and um, so um, there is uh, like from my own historical research when i looked at what patabi joyce actually wanted to um or, or how his own understanding of the yoga sutra was it was not an embodied text for him it was not a text that taught exactly um the practice he was teaching there was not what he was um writing in his book yoga mala and it was no, he's talking about hatha yoga texts there isn't he yeah yeah, he introduces or he includes the Yoga Sutra in some points, especially the notion of tapas that the Yoga Sutra, of course, also um, employs in the Ashtanga section and um, some other things. But mainly he talks actually about Hatha Yoga and um, he uses tetric terms, too. So he has, um, yeah, this book has a um, not a, a, let's say, very intimate connection to the to the Yoga Sutra. And um, yeah, so when I talked to some senior students, I interviewed some senior students of Patabi Joyce, for example, Gregor Merle, and he told me well, he knew the Yoga Sutra before. He did a philosophy uh, training in Berlin and he knew the text and he wanted to go to India to find someone who teaches him how to do it, <laughs> how to experience it. So the theory is a little bit that um, um, this system, which was is basically a asana, um, an intense asana practice, um, was like more and more shaped uh, to be called Ashtanga Yoga by, let's say, an exchange between Westerners asking and Padavi Joyce reacting and responding to it. Yeah. So we have this and this makes it very like somehow the discourse difficult <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly what what is meant by ashtanga and then also what's meant by asana because asana is one of the eight parts ashtanga is just eight parts the limbs really components yeah. uh, elements of a system um but if the main focus is on the postures which is what asana comes to mean and we go back to the yoga sutra it just doesn't really have anything to say it doesn't name any postures in the sutra part and even in the commentary it just talks about how to sit so it's not got anything to do as you say with this embodied practice so why the attempt do you think to focus on this text so closely why is everybody so interested in it <laughs> well first of all um it just started in the late 19th century with with the theosophists the theosophists were extremely uh, influential 
um, in not only in their own realm of listeners, which was already broad, um, but um, like theosophists themselves, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they um, attracted um, scientists um, of different sorts, psychologists, um, but also writers and artists. So they had an extreme influence and they had a deep interest in their text already. And um, so it started early in um, Britain, in America, in Germany, especially. And it seems to me it, it just went on and on. <laughs> so the interest of that to, um, it, it, it's somehow an, a, a magic text. It, 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 it never faded. It, um, it just changed shape. <laughs> so the interest, how um, the text was uh, interpreted and for what it was used, for example, Jakob Wilhelm Hauer in the 1930s really used it um, to um, rationalize um, uh, killing billions of Jews. So he, uh, it, there was a the rationalization of why to use that text um, was very manifold and broad. So I think it could is... you try to summarize that for people? Because obviously that's quite a shocking thing to hear that, uh, that, yeah. uh, that the yoga I... Bible was 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 given that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but actually, Jakob Wilhelm Hauer moved away from the Yoga Sutra towards the Bhagavad Gita. That's um, obviously a clearer justification of <laughs> kill people and you won't be stained by it. <laughs> that's exactly what his um, like attempt was. So the attempt of just acting in the world because this is your dharma, whatever, and. Um, afterwards, not kind of standing next to it and not being, don't have any um, should, don't have any um, guilt. guilt. <laughs> That's it. So actually, he moved away from the Yoga Sutra, but um, at that point, he already um, published quite some books. So he had an, a, uh, let's say, intense, um, yeah. He, he was very influential on how the Yoga Sutra was perceived afterwards. Even when I was in university, we read his translation. It is one of the German translations that is still common. <laughs> so, um... Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.